was let me just uh i might not mention the exact number i'm pretty sure i'm 99.99999 percent confident that that's correct Hey, Jamie, welcome. Uh, pity we're not in the studio, but lovely to see you and uh, hear your voice. Yeah, good to see you. I wish it was in person at the studio, but, you know, we're at home, so we'll carry on with that. We will carry on, although um, lockdown is maybe a bit less lock at the moment. Uh, we can see people returning to stores in a suitably uh, distance way. So fingers crossed that the uh, the beginning of the pandemic is at an end and we're hopefully coming out of it. Fingers crossed, anyway. Yeah, let's see what Santa so, has to bring us. <laughs> well, one of the things that Santa's brought uh, is, of course, some recordings we made uh, with a couple of lovely guests. So uh, let's not be selfish and share them. Uh, first up, we have uh, Guy McGrath from uh, RS Components. Um, fascinating conversation. Uh, so Guy is uh, reflecting on um, a long career then, some amazing achievements, and also going to give us uh, his insights on how to transform uh, a business. So uh, let, let's let him tell us uh, his story. Should we just dive into that one, Jamie? Let's go for it. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Um, my name is Guy McGrath. I'm the former CEO of Electric Components, or more commonly known in the UK as RS, or an ally, America Allied. Also part founder of the one of their businesses called OK Do setting up their first startup of single board computing. I've now moved into advisory and consultancy roles now. Let's focus on RS. So half of our audience would immediately think, God, I love RS. You know, those catalogs full of diodes and computing bits and <laughs> all those. It's not enough to have a light. There's 732 different types of, you know, voltage, wattage collectors. I mean, they are just geek heaven Things. So just in case there is anybody that isn't as excited about you know, hundreds of thousands of products as we might be, just give us a sketch of the size of the business, because it is quite extraordinary. I suppose it's the catalogue is what people remember it for, and its product range has grown to have a stocked range of around half a million products. Um, <laughs> and a non-stock range into actually the many millions. And when you say non-stock, you're talking about actually still available to order, but just not physically in a warehouse somewhere. Exactly that. I mean, so it, would, it wouldn't be a next day delivery service. It would be a lead time from the supplier. But you'd give mm. all the information for that product on your site. It operates in 60 countries around the world, all in local language. It has well over a million engineers uh, accessing it. 70% of its sales are online. Um, wow. in, in, in Europe, uh, 60 for the group predominantly, and uh, has a turnover of um, nearly £2 billion. Wow. Again, when you think about the combinatorial complexities there of you know, little bits, and, and these are highly specialised things, they're bits you may only need once a year, but when you need it, boy, do you need it. So you'd have these products, uh, half a million of them, available to pick and pack, but also translated into many languages as well. So, I mean, how many translation languages do you do at the moment? We have 28 local sites, I think it is, around the world. So there would be an element of local language in those. We start with an order book of zero every day. 
Yeah, and I think that's the bit that people find quite hard to understand is, you know, mm. we the net, we don't have any much planned orders. The vast majority is literally the day the order is placed. So customers are researching in the morning and then come into place their, their order in the afternoon. Wow. And um, that's quite interesting. So there's no sort of seasonality around, oh, you know, September is bulb month or, uh, you know, different things at different times. It literally mm. is a case of, there's you know, not the shop much. is open, come and buy. They used to I mean there used to be a budget dumping, end of year budget dumping. I've got money to spare, let's spend it. You know, whether that's in December or in March, or you know, a lot of manufacturing is running up to Christmas and obviously the Christmas rush, and then there may be some planned maintenance coming in in January, February, March, in mm. terms of where where businesses are refitting lines to back up production. So there kind of are smaller trends like that, but predominantly the maintenance and, you know, design of new equipment is happening all year round. Wow. Talk about the customers you have. So you say there's a million. Uh, I had the impression that the customer base is a percentage of sort of amateur hobbyists like me, education, then B2B, and then highly specialised technical people is that right or you know how how does the customer base break down if you look at the customer base by industry type or by size first and then we'll come on to the type of user we serve across virtually every single industrial vertical you know whether it's in food manufacturing to defense through to transportation, through to energy, we're in everyone. And we are also dealing with very large corporate organizations, whether, you know, the MOD, you know, GlaxoSmithKline's, et cetera, the world, through to medium regionalized businesses, to a large chunk of very small sized businesses of people under 50. And mm. below that, we also deal with obviously hobbyists as well in terms of individuals. But they're probably two main customers. And it's really at either end of the life cycle of a product. You know, the beginning of a life cycle of a product is a design engineer who is very much working on maybe six or seven prototypes at one go, wanting small volumes of products, a very wide range of the latest and newest products, great data sheets. And hence the reason why they love our site so much, because it has that rich information. Right down to the other end of the life cycle, where the product's nearer the end of the life and it needs fixing and maintaining. Mm. customers come onto our site these are called a maintenance engineer and actually come onto our site and very much try and find the product to do an immediate replacement of that product to keep their production line running fascinating and again we've been talking a lot about whole life cycle so it's not just about the moment of buy and that's a really interesting insight from product development through to you know end of life or maintenance uh, to keep it going now we would normally be saying things like oh catalog technical blah 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 and I'd not think of you as being advanced and having such a high proportion of your sales online so how painful or easy was that i mean it's quite a shift from catalog company to 70 percent online million customers what was that transition like and was it a a happy, easy one, or was there a moment that uh, spurred you to making the change? I mean, it was incredibly visionary. You know, back in 1997, we set up our first online shop 
This is no. 1998, I think Google started. So, you know, I was going to say, did the web, did it work in 97? Yeah, I, I think it was next game. Having lots of broken things. That kind of, you know, kind of, you know, it's very slow. But, you know, to give you a feel for the transition, 1997, and bear with me on the day, so 1997, it took us 10 years to get to our first £250 million pounds online. Okay. And realistically, that phase I would define as the early adopters, people who were mm. very keen to use it, etc. So that was from 97 to 2006, a slow slog of building functionality that, to get people to try and use it. Actually, I just need to interrupt there because our younger listener will be a just trying to look up what 1997, 96 means. But for, for those of us who were working online in those days, it wasn't even fully online. We used to get cover mount CDs of the Tesco website attached to computing magazines because you couldn't download all the images. So you literally have a catalogue on a CD with little bits of web update at the end of the last century. That's just to, to, yeah. to add in for our younger listener. We had a CD at the same time as well, which was one of our biggest CD. ways of getting people across. So. They were the future. They were the future. The CD, yes. The CD was our big launch. So it's a time capsule and we need to dig it up it and was. find out what was in it. <laughs> it's a 10 years it took us to get to our first um, 250 million. I, I would define that as the early adopter phase. People are really, this is the cutting edge technology. So, the next 250 million to get us from 250 to 500 million took us um, six years. Um, and I would define this probably as the migration phase where customers were now starting to move from offline to online. E-commerce was very much seen as a cost saving exercise. Yes. Uh, you know, every 1% you got online, the call center would go back by a foot, you know, sort of scenario. I probably actually did quite a lot of damage for e-commerce generally within business, especially legacy businesses, because it was seen as a cost-cutting exercise rather mm. than a growth-driving exercise. But there again, it took us – now customers were starting to be really interested in it, and it took us six years to get that 200 uh, – to get to 500 million. It then took us three years – so I think we're now, what, 2015 sort of scenario – to get to the next 250 million. So 10 years to six to three. And this, I think, was the globalization phase of where actually we were rolling out everything as a platform to 28 countries around the world, which what predominantly were driven out the UK at the time. So scaling it and getting to start to get some large scale. And then it took us one and a half years to get from 750 to a billion. And that, what I think, is what I define as the transformational phase of where the whole business and our whole real understanding really started to move online. So I love that characterization of it, but you weren't sitting there as a passenger just saying, oh my goodness, six years has gone by and we've just hit it. So firstly, were they stages in your mind? Were you sitting and strategizing and saying, do you know what, the next thing is the migration phase, or the next thing is the cost cutting phase. To what extent were you making explicit strategic choices versus post-rationalizing as you look back? What was it like at the time? Well, the first two phases, I was in other parts of the business. I took over in 2013, which is probably where the globalization phase started, and then the transformation phase is where I think the real big change happened. The globalization phase 
but was a natural choice to actually, how can we scale something that seems to be working in the UK? Our customers around the world were ordering similar order sizes, similar order frequencies. It was just the maturity of the market that was actually mm. depending on the size of the business. So it, it made it natural choice to scale this opportunity out as far as we possibly could. But I think at the same time as scale, RS is, this is about 2015, and this is when Lindsay Ruth, our CEO, joined. Uh, it was clear that our performance as a business had tailed off. You know, we were moved out of the FTSE 250 down to a FTSE 300-odd company. And our kind of reputation for really amazing customer service was starting to tail off in what was becoming a faster moving digital market. And we were finding it quite hard to keep up in every category that we're trying to play in. Um, and hence the reason why in 2015, we really had to put an exerted effort behind it to really try and accelerate our digital performance. And what does that mean? It sounds a very neutral thing you know we just accelerate but you know for anybody that tracks their own sporting performance on strava uh, there's a very big gap between the brain saying ian accelerate your fat body and the body actually doing it so the brain is saying we need to accelerate uh, what did that mean in terms of organization teams getting buy-in without doubt the catalyst for the change in 2015 was a new CEO coming in with a new vision and believing this was the route we needed to go. My job as CDO was to really equip Lindsley with actually how the world would be significantly better in the new world for our customers, our suppliers, our shareholders, our environment and our community in a digital world than where it was today. And, you know, it kind of first starts off, what is digital and what is digital transformation? Because I think that's a logical question where most people mm. are starting. We defined it clearly just as saying that digital is the use of data and technology to either create greater operating leverage and scale, you know, as in be more efficient, or B, open up brand new revenue streams that are available to customers that have never been before in terms of our business through digital revenue streams. And transformation is just challenging your operating model exactly against that in terms of, you know, can you be more efficient and can you drive more revenue streams? So, you know, we kind of went through that stage, but state, I mean, we, I did a lot of research looking at all of the top consultancy houses about what they were saying about digital transformation at the time in 2015. It was a very hot topic. Mm. And we took the best of it and came up what we believed was a five-step approach of which we can talk through each of the stages, but they weren't done one after the other. They were done in, in they were done in parallel. The best way to tell the story is to tell those five stages each one, which stage one was very much getting the CEO 100% behind it. We absolutely believe that if we didn't have the CEO fully on board, it doesn't matter how much enthusiasm you drive from the bottom down, or it has to be driven by the CEO. And my aim was to try and get Lindsay to be so excited about it, he would tell the city and the board, and therefore committing to our delivery of delivering of that transformation. And that was stage mm -hmm. one. Well, you can't just stop there. I need two, three, four, and five. No, hours. no, yes. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> so, really, the next stage was 
RSF built its reputation around a great customer experience or in terms of the customer service, you know, service with a smile, I think it was, it used to have as a, as a slogan in the 70s and 80s. But in a digital world, it was getting caught behind. So we absolutely wanted to focus predominantly on building an amazing customer experience. And we worked around three basic tenants. And actually, these tenants of customer experience, I think, are true today and in any business. Mm-hmm. Um, and those three tenants were unparalleled ease of use would be the first and probably the most important. Our customers were shouting at us, virtually shouting us through either voice the customer research, Salesforce feedback, uh, whether it's analytics. They were kind of saying, Guy, I want to get on your site and off your site as quickly as I can. Don't be offended by that. I've got a job to do and I'm very, very busy. Yes. And your life, like my life, is just getting incredibly busier. And there's one commodity we have less of is time. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, convenience is the new loyalty. If you make it so easy to use, people will come back again. So we, number one tenant, we wanted to make it incredibly easy to use, taking out, and I'll come back how we did that. Uh, Number two, we wanted to make it hyper-personalized or friendly. You know, some of our customers have been with us decades. Some of them are just brand new. Some of them are worth millions of pounds or not. And we had such rich information for them. And we wanted to use the amazing data that we had as a competitive advantage to provide richer journeys for our customers in terms of, you know, these are the products you bought, this is the alternatives with these products, bringing all the data in one place to make their life easier and Mm -hmm. richer. And so we knew them as a customer. And then thirdly, we just wanted to make it fast. You know, I think in 2013, our website speed was seven seconds, a load page. I suppose anyone ordered, you know, it's now less than one and a half seconds anywhere around the world. But it's not just site speed. You know, there is a speed in terms of just, people want things quicker is they want deliveries quicker you know next day delivery is now moving to same day delivery when customers have a question about a product they don't want an email coming in two or three days time they want an immediate response so ease hyper friendly and personalized and fast great well i mean that that's something that i think all of our uh, listeners would agree with okay so um i'm feeling it so far what what are the other aspects of we set up, I think mean, we had about 15 agile teams in the end. We broke up our customer journey, which was basically we went research, find, buy, pay, deliver, and then after sales. And we broke down every single point of friction or possible opportunity to make it more seamless for customers to purchase. And then it's, you'd see our NPS going up from 48 to 59. Um, and customers were finding it easy and easy to purchase, so therefore spending more. So, you know, stage one, you've had an amazing, you've got your CEO to absolutely wax lyrical about digital. Stage two, you've built the most amazing customer experience for customers to come back. Stage three, it was all about building some of the capabilities, and this was around the technology. But where do you start? Every business has got legacy. And we really just wanted to focus on the basics, you know, our ERP system, our PIM system, and then finally at the front end, a fully responsive mobile-enabled website underpinned by microservices to enable us to go faster. Okay. And they're the three things we nailed to start with. Stop you slightly there, because when you say the basics, everyone is now just shuddering at the thought of multiple, multi-year multi-million pound complex projects. I mean, nobody in their right mind 
wants to replace CRP because it's it's just a nightmare. Pim, anyone who's done a Pim project never wants to do it again. And then you say, let's just go to microservices. So those are three mighty projects to just gloss over. I mean, uh, getting board support for one of those is quite hard, but all of them together, that that's quite an achievement. That some of those are still actually going on today. Um, we reduced our what we call our run costs of our business by about 10 million to enable us to invest. Mm. Um, and realistically, we just wanted to get the core journey of finding, billing, ordering products as smooth as we possibly can. And the PIM was predominantly, the, the, the ERP was just upgrading to the cloud. And I say just, uh, it was a significant <laughs> job. The PIM was the big one, and the fully responsive website underpinned by microservices were both big, but both Excellent. working well. But they, they were they are sizable jobs, um, and they are multi-year jobs. But to enable us to get to the springboard that we wanted to, both of those had to be completed. Guy, you, you've mentioned sort of, I think it's three out of your five, as it were, so I'm probably jumping a bit too soon, but I can't help but ask the question, which is you don't really talk about the marketing side. Is that because of the unique nature of the business you, uh, that you have? I'm just thinking about for our, for the listeners of this, you know, how it would translate your experience, which is all focused on the experience and, and making things, all the things you just said about making it incredibly easy and intuitive and and easy and all that stuff. You know, how it would relate to their business because, as I say, marketing doesn't seem to be something you've talked about much. That's a really good question, and um, you, you would have thought it was a lead into the next one, which is stage four, which was talent. And this, I think, comes into this. So once you've got the CEO, once you've got the customer experience, once you've got the enablers, which includes data as well. Data is an absolute, you know, data central data ecosystem. Mm. The fourth one was talent. Ta- and we needed to bring talent in. And the problem electric components faced or RS components faced on talent was it's neither a brand that no one really knows or it's got technology that people would die for to come and work for. So we kind of asked the question a different way around. Why would you come and work for Electro or RS Components? And we called it the dinner party question in terms of when someone asks you, where do you work? You know, I work at Electro Components or RS. What do they do? They distribute 500,000 products everywhere around the world and they spell industrial components. And you can see their eyes glazing over. You know? No, no, literally, I am putting my napkin down and we are moving <laughs> together right now. <laughs> but we, we, we changed the proposition and purpose very much around a an emotional leadership position of around about actually who do we serve and we serve engineers and engineers do some of the most amazing things for society and moving mankind and society forward whether it is a you know um, a medical engineer in, in medicine whether it is a you know construction engineer building a school I mean, our customers were doing some of the most amazing things. And, you know, an example I think I, I talk about is Ben Ryan. He's he's a customer of ours, and um, his son was born a forceps delivery and lost, sadly, lost his arm. You know, his, his son's called Sol, and his whole drive in life was to move from being a teacher to then setting up a engineering company for uh, called Ambionics that made prosthetic arms for children. Um, and RS supported him all the way through that with you know, 3D filaments, et cetera, sorry, 3D printing filaments, et cetera, to help build and prototype and build prosthetic arms, which he's now actually started to build as a worldwide business. Mm. 
And mm-hmm. actually, I'll put the link in underneath because you know this is uh, not only a, an interesting human story, but you know, some of the research he went into around if your prosthetic doesn't have functioning grip, then the young child won't move later into using uh, active prosthetics. So he developed everything from, you know, pressure, bladder systems to give you a opposing thumb and grip. I mean, the, the video, which I will link to, is absolutely extraordinary in terms of passion, brain, yeah. problem solving, manufacturing. It, it really is a story, uh, I think, for our age. It is amazing. And how he, and how he woke up one night as feeding his child and he saw that a spider runs by using hydraulics in terms of a spider and and that's inspired him but we captured these stories um jamie we captured these stories and started to put them on youtube and to give you a feel for it it took electros or rs seven years to get to its first one million views on youtube these videos were getting one million views a week but the question is we just had whether it's either engineering or whether by our customers or by suppliers you know eben upton and pie and how he was a, a lecturer and a, and at Cambridge University in computer science, and his classes were getting smaller. So he, he wanted to design Raspberry Pi to get people engineering to build a better class size, you know, and look what he created. You know, and we were telling these stories, whether by a supplier or by, and we had so many of them. Um, mm. But this propelled our brand immediately into a leadership position. But most of well, the reason why we really did it was because we wanted to attract talent and. You know, millennial audience is very purpose-driven. We moved our head office to London, and we were attracting talent. You know, London attracts talent from the UK anyway, but right across Europe were coming to to work for us. You know, from leading brands to enable us to take this leadership position and talk about engineering and how it was, you know, doing a good thing to society. Mm. And actually, you know, when we and engineers just love to know about other engineers, you know, and you know, through this, you know, our website visits went from, what, 60 million in 2015 up to 120 million. You know, so realistically, the brand and how we amplified our brand and obviously through a lot of the capabilities that we build in stage three enable us to really propel the band going forward to a, you know, what, a 500 million pound business to over a 1.25 billion pound online business by the end of 2018. I love the context because absolutely it brings the story to life, as you say, from something that may be relatively flat. You talked about the dinner party bit, you know, you've upped the game certainly with the context of the stories. But I guess also if we're talking about back to sort of P&L type stuff is that your marketing budget therefore becomes reasonable and something that's, uh, you know, not going to hinder the business going forward because you can invest in great stories which tell the story for you and therefore it's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Is that right? It, absolutely. I mean, the output measures of what happened to the business, and I'll, I'll touch on those at the end in terms of what happened to the business and its and its change, were transformational in terms of its what happened to the overall business. Okay, well, let's just very quickly say what um, step five is and then uh, give us the answer. Just so step five really is, is you drive real cultural change across the whole organization rather than just a digital function. Probably the hardest change to do, you know, because the speed of which a digital team was moving was actually um, moving at pace and keeping everybody up to speed is quite tricky. You know, but we we had really nice on-site events, two-day events where we're bringing best speakers in. People's objectives were aligned to digital ways of working in terms of multifunctional teams mentoring programs 
But we saw some amazing stuff coming out for the business and still coming out. Our STEM mm. program, you know, how do we use uh, data science for our sales force? All of these things were coming out that enable us to see um, a great change in terms of going right across the whole business rather than just the digital function. Okay, well, it sounds like we need to come back to that uh, in more depth at some point. But uh, just give us the highlights then on the results. So you've touched on some of the metrics so far, but, you know, when when you look at the scorecards at the end of this five-step process, what are the scores on the doors? Yeah, so the, the biggest output measure was Electroponents became one of the top five growth stocks in the FTSE 250. Its market capitalization went from what three uh, from 1.06 billion to 3.2 billion, and its uh, share price went from about two pounds fifty to seven pounds fifty. You know, mm. um, it's it, every measure, whether in sales, profit, NPS, you know, virtually you know, went went from uh, 48 to 59. All of these measures went up significantly. You know, across the board, and we won the Transformation of the Business Year Award at the London School of Economics. But the digital team won, I think, over 30 awards, you know, best digital in-house business, best digital strategy, best customer experience, best brand campaign. And we're up yeah. against leading B2B and B2C players. But the, the, the takeout was, you know, it was the growth of the business to become, you know, and I think we're now, what, 117 in the FTSE from where we were, 320 odd, you know, three or four. Right. So let's get in uh, by our Raspberry Pis quickly to see if we can get you back in. But listen, I just want to finish off with one, I suppose, question, which is around your career, because uh, we talk lightly that there's a CDO, Chief Digital Officer, but there aren't that many of them. So if I'm not mistaken, you started your work career at uh, RS. Is that right? Yeah, as a graduate trainee. Right. So you go from a graduate trainee in not digital to some while later being a very modern job title, chief digital officer in a not yet digital business driving transformation. So, you know, I think there'll be an interesting story there. But also it does say a lot about the culture of the business that allows someone to grow their career inside the business, not only to be to get to you know board level, but also in a relatively new field. So, uh, just how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this is down to um, the culture, as you say, of electric components. You know, I quite like the job title, you know, general manager, just for the fact is that electro components believe that you build better capabilities if you move people across the organisation. So, you know, I was moved within geographical locations. I was then put within marketing, within product, within technology within digital and market etc so therefore giving you a breadth of experience of a business understanding the whole value chain and realistically therefore that kind of term general manager gives you a real appreciation and understanding mm. there is an element you have to perform and hit your objectives to be able to to, to progress but it gave you you know undoubtedly amazing opportunities by either geography or type of work for people to progress who really wanted. And, you know, just by having a graduate recruitment program, graduate management program, gave you a feeling that actually they actually believed that this was a route for the business to go. So yeah. it, without doubt, it is an ethos within the business to enable you to do it. And without that culture, it would never have happened. Um, of which I am incredibly grateful. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think that synthesis, since of digital being lipstick on a pig, 
it is you know, woven through and emerges from the many areas of functional expertise in the business. So I think um, we need to come back and maybe dedicate uh, a podcast episode to culture and trainee programs and development of the organizations. A lot of a lot of people in mood from direct marketing, I think it was then, you know, very inquisitive, data driven, naturally evolved into a digital world because, you know, it, there were mm. huge similarities in there, you know, and, and I, I suppose I'm very fortunate that it was an opportunity that arose that was actually very, for our customer base, was we, we could leverage significantly. So I was very lucky about that, to be at the right place at the right time. Um, but, it's, um, <laughs> but it was, I mean, what a great ride. Well, look, it was a, it's a very modest characterization. I often find that the uh, best performing people say they were at the right place at the right time, but it takes talent and work, I think, to be right on both of those. So, uh, Guy, look, thanks so much for sharing what feels like the tip of an iceberg of a long and interesting story. But thank you for summarizing that. Uh, absolutely fascinating. And I look forward to chatting to you again to dive into some of these topics that you've raised for us so well. Guy, thank you so much. Pleasure, and pleasure, Jamie. So, how lucid is that? I mean, that is somebody who's uh, not only done a lot, but thought very carefully about uh, his approaches and what it means to be uh, a modern retailer. Yeah, I think the thing that struck me was his clarity of thinking. He was very, very clear on what he wanted to do, what his plan was, and executing against that. And some of the things you could imagine that you know anyone might say, like hire world class talent, as it were, but. But all those things are true, uh, even if they've been done by others. But need saying, as it were, in the way he presented them, I thought was uh, an excellent way to look at it. Yeah, and uh, I think what I think that I think stands out is that whole dinner party test, where you know we each have to say what we do, and uh, hopefully not get met by blank stares. I think the uh, the transformation they've done is extraordinary. So. Well done, him, and we look forward to hearing from uh, Guy uh, at another point to hear an update. But now it's time to turn to sofas. Everyone loves a sofa. Especially now, so uh, it's a good time <laughs> to be catching up. And we were lucky to grab some time with Graham Wilson from Sophology, and he's going to tell us a bit about his business and, you know, in a world of fast fashion and you know rapid delivery of things uh, you can't really argue with the physicality of a massive uh, four-person sofa so let's just uh, catch up with him and hear a bit about uh, his role and of course the sofa selling business so sophology is a leading furniture and um, retailer in the uk you will see us on retail parks uh, across the country and you also, we also have a website where we, where we sell sofas as well. It's been an interesting nine months for us. I joined the business in January, where I came from my previous role at AO um, as head of business development. And sort of in a nutshell, my role and the reason why I was sort of brought to the business is to help join, I guess, the offline and online businesses um, together with a single way of working. So that includes everything from our, I guess, our digital side of the business, website, CRM and digital marketing through to our inbound call center and then also bridging the gap then um, to our retail to our retail team. Mm. And, and what are the dynamics of selling sofas? It's also something that as consumers, we do that often. But my main recollection is I look at one, I'm told, yes, yeah, not like that. It's different. You're given a swatch, you're told to wait 12 weeks, and it's generally not the world's best uh, experience. So 
what what is it that uh, that is a challenge that maybe people in other categories don't realize you know how what, what's the knack of selling sofas so I, I guess you've summed it up really really well there it's quite a complicated process everyone has different tastes there's lots and lots and lots of different choice there ranging from how how soft the product is and whether you want to sit in it or sit on it through to what color you want and how you want that to fit into the broader kind of I guess styling of your house through to just the actual physical size of the products and being able to take that kind of um, image that you have in the showroom and the store through to through to actually what it might then look like on in, in your kind of front room and um, when it lands. Mm-hmm. I think to your point about the twelve week lead time, I think it is true. One of the things with sofas is, from, well, from our point of view, is that they're made to order, which means we do have longer lead times than sort of being able to walk in and buy a fridge freezer or something like that from a, a Curry's or an AO or wherever that might be. So we have to make sure that from a customer journey point of view, we're regularly communicating with our customers, letting them know updates about where their product is, giving them confidence that actually it is on time. Because typically when you're when you're fitting out your living room or you're, you're redecorating or restyling, it's part of a broader project. So actually you need those timelines to kind of really, really tie in um, nicely. So yeah, so I guess from our point of view, it's how we make that um, quite complex decision around the product choice, simple. And then once the customer has made that, that, that choice of their product, how we then make the customer journey onwards and um, really transparent, really clear and really informative. So it sounds like instead of just a moment of purchase, you've got everything from manufacturing and sourcing through to customer communications. Uh, it's a lot to to pull together. Before we dive into that, just tell me how Sophology fits into the sofa landscape. So DFS brought you into the family. What customer segment, what offer does Sophology fill? So I guess DFS purchased us as a kind of a complementary brand. So um, one of the, I guess, from a product point of view, our price point is a bit higher. Um, so our average order value is a little bit higher than DFS is. Um, we appeal to probably a different type of customer. So one of the things that we don't do at Sophology is sales and discounting. We believe that the products are really good value and actually the products sell themselves at the, at the price point that they're at. You know, if you compare us to a DFS where there is often a sale on, um, we are- There's always the a sale on. There's always a sale on, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, we are at, we're at the end of the scale where actually we're more focused on actually finding a product that, you know, you're going you're to keep in your house for, you know, up to seven years uh, and something you want to kind of feel comfortable with for a long time. Mm. In terms of the broader group, obviously DFS, there's, there's us, um, Sophology, there's DFS, and there's also Dwell. And um, so we've kind of got, I guess, the whole kind of sofa through to kind of accessories and building your room um, covered off as well, which is which is helpful. Right. So there's there's no corner of the living room that uh, can't be solved. Now, you came, uh, you mentioned it uh, in passing from AO, again, a very successful company that's, you know, doing great things in its sector. Uh, but it's quite a jump from, I know, a dishwasher to a you know, multi-configuration product. How has that change been f- across product category? So it's actually, it's quite interesting. It's one of the things that I kind of reflected on very early at Sophology, that there is actually quite a lot of similarity. So we're dealing with large items here. They are things that are kind of, they're not, you know, you're not just buying kind of something that's worth 10, 20 pounds. You're buying something that's in the thousands. So in terms of the consideration and um, the amount of time, I think customers put into kind of purchasing a product, in some ways, it's very similar. Obviously, from an AO point of view, they've got the distress market where um, the customer needs that product right now. Whereas from our side, it tends to be more kind of aspirational and tends to be more about the actual um, lifestyle and life choice that you're that, you, that you're at that particular point in time. 
But, you know, I was incredibly fortunate to work at AO for, for seven years. It taught me a lot about kind of, you know, really putting the customer first, thinking about the customer journey and kind of, you know, trying to remove complexity and also just make it as simple as possible because at the end of the day, not everyone is tech savvy. People need to be able to navigate around and, like you say, refine and filter what is quite a complex product choice um, relatively quickly. So, Graham, I was going to ask you, about, it's, it's interesting, you know, that cross from AO, which you said was, you know, more, more immediate purchase versus a longer term thinking process for a sofa, of course. You mentioned how you keep the customer in communication so they know that, it, you know, of that 12 week span, a period of span, that they're going to get the sofa when and all that sort of stuff, right? So you'll, you'll keep in touch with them, doing all you can to keep them informed. But on the other hand, you've got impatient customers. Do they... Do they go along with this 12-week thing? Do you manage to keep them on the journey or do you, uh, are customers increasingly showing signs of wanting things sooner now? And, and does that mean you change, you might add more categories to your product base or, you know, tell me a bit about that. Yes, it's, it's, it's a great, great question. I think first and foremost, with the longer lead times, it is about kind of making sure that the customer has the right product for them and that they understand what product they they have and that they're, you know, they're walking away with the, the right choice. I think you've got to be open and transparent about it. You know, during lockdown, obviously supply chain and everything like that has been impacted. It means that actually 12 weeks has now become 16, 18, 20 weeks in some cases. Mm. So it's really about being transparent and honest and open up front with the customer about this is this is the lead time and this is when you can expect your sofa. And you know, if that's not right, then we have to look at other options. So, you know, we do have we do have some stock on shorter lead times and um, potentially stuff that's returned or been cancelled that we can that we can look at helping our customers out with and, and swapping in. But yeah, and, and I think to your point about introducing new categories, I think one of the things that we've done recently is launch a, a selection of what we call special buys. Now, these special buys are, they take some of our kind of classic models and some of our more popular sofas, and they give them a bit of a restyle and a refresh with a different fabric and potentially a different color. Um, and what we do with them is we actually work with our suppliers to bring some into stock, a limited number, um, but they're available for pretty much immediate delivery. The customer has that choice. They can walk into a store go on the website, they can see the special buy that's there. It's not discounted, it's not a sale, it's just another variation of the same product. But because we're able to kind of work with our suppliers, we're able to um, we're able to have some in stock, which gives the customer that choice mm. that means they can then um, have that product a bit quicker if they want it. Interesting. I wanted to ask you about COVID and the lockdown, because availability obviously would be key. You're sitting at home, you want a new sofa, you can't go and see it. And you may have a long lead time. So tell us a bit about how lockdown and this COVID period has affected your business. Good, bad, indifferent, changed. How, how's it been for you? So it's, it's been a challenge. Um, it's not been easy. I mean, when you close... When, <laughs> Classic understatement. Yeah, exactly. Understatement of the year. When you close, I guess when you close your, um, you know, 8% of your business, 9% of your business, which is your retail estate, and we know that 90% of our customers want to go and sit on the product before they buy it, um, it poses mm. a bit of a challenge. Um, that said, we had to use, um, te- we, well, basically the way we approached it from Sophology point of view was to embrace it and um, see it as an opportunity and um, use some great tools that we already had in our kind of toolbox um, to sort of, you know, fill the gap and kind of drive, uh, allow our customers to experience the product without being actually physically able to go into a store and, and, and sit on them. So I guess one of the key things that we did was we have a product in our, uh, I guess, online, which is called Sophologist Live which is a video chat service where you can connect directly to one of our store colleagues. Um, during lockdown, we were fortunate enough to have two stores up and running, even though there was no 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 um, customers allowed through the door. We had um, a couple of our sophologists 
uh, who volunteered to kind of go and man the Sophologist Live service. And what that allowed us to do, therefore, was to talk about the product online, really talk about the service about, actually, why don't you give us a video call? We'll demo the product. We'll show you the product. And so let's be clear about this. Uh, Is this sort of old-fashioned people's video where it's as if you're being held hostage um, in a photo me booth or sort of teenager type where it's like on a selfie stick and you're running around and jumping on sofas. You know, what, what sort of experience is that for the consumer? So it's absolutely the latter. So um, we, have some, uh, we, have some fantastic, <laughs> we have some fantastic sophologists who um, love to walk around with a tripod, an Android phone, and like you say, a selfie stick kind of holding it in front of themselves, talking to the customer, and what they do is they kind of, just to give you an idea, so let's say, for example, you rang up and wanted to see The Alchemist, which is one of our products. The Sophologist in store would answer the, you'd go on the website, you'd click on the, the Sophologist Live icon, and you'll be connected to, uh, let's say, Nottingham store, um, where you'll be met on the device by one of our Sophologists, who would take you to The Alchemist and then would set the tripod up and talk to you as though you were in store. So, you know, they would lay on the sofa to show you the dimensions so you can get a feel for how big it is. They would jump up and down on it or bounce up and down on it to show you kind of like, I guess, the comfort mm-hmm. side of things. Um, they can zoom in using the camera um, on specific features, so whether that's the feet or the, the detail on the arm or whatever that might be. Uh, and then they can also talk to you on about the swatches and the different colors that are available. So they can, again, they can zoom into the swatch book and sort of show you the different options. So you can then compare and contrast on the on, on the website. So this is uh, quite a jump from augmented reality that you see with Amazon or IKEA. This is actual reality, the end of a FaceTime or whatever Android version is call. The, the, the beauty of the service that we're able to offer is that the customer can actually buy there and then. They don't have to kind of hang up, transact online or, or anything. They can talk to the sophologist. They can be building the basket on the iPad while they're talking to them. And then obviously they can purchase through the they can purchase um, over the phone or they can complete at home via their their MySophology account. They don't have to kind of mm-hmm. go on, find that product, add it to the basket, make sure it was the right one that they've been talking about. The sophologist can do all that for them and then the customer just has to press pay. Was it used much before lockdown, that service, or was it is it really, it's obviously really picked up now, but was it being used before? Yeah. So we launched it in December late December last year. And we had it in two stores before lockdown. So we had it in Nottingham and Croydon. And, you know, we'd get a reasonable number of calls per day. But then since lockdown, after the first couple of days of people kind of wondering what this was all about, um, the volume on the service has just gone through the roof. So just last week, we went through a million pounds worth of assisted sales via the service. No. Um, which, you know, in 266 days is, is huge. We see really strong AOV. So actually, if you compare the AOV on the service to... I guess our standard internet AOV is 46% higher. So we're really kind of attracting a different type wow. of customer to the digital experience. And do you need to attract a different type of staff member? Because you know, it's not for everybody leaping around and doing, you know, squat thrusts onto sofas to see how soft they are. Or, you, know, you know, your mileage may vary, of course. But, I mean, you've got to be pretty customer-focused and performance-oriented to be in retail sales, but are you seeing that your existing staff have just taken to it like the proverbial duck to water or that it's new skills and training? Has that affected the staff training or mix at all? So I think we're an incredibly fortunate place that it fits really, really well with our, um, I guess, our sophologist. Our sophologists are incredibly knowledgeable about the product. You know, they're incredibly enthusiastic about the brand. And really, when you're talking about this kind of service, it is all about connecting customers to our brand. 
although they are kind of obviously going to go and buy the product. From our point of view, yes, there's always going to be people that are more comfortable walking around with a selfie stick than 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 others. But you know, we've not had to work that hard with our with our with our team to kind of get them up to speed with it. We have a best practice group that we do every week where we talk amongst the. I think we've got eight stores online now where we talk amongst the group, and it's working really really well. And you know, the the sophologists really see the benefit of the service because ultimately, um, you know, those customers are going to come into the store eventually and kind of you know hopefully they might buy um, mm. there and then as well. So. And if you if you extrapolate this, you know, the world is full of super positive people and more negative people. So one lot see a tiny example and think this is now going to be 100 percent. And then other people are saying, oh, the high street is dead. Boo hoo. You know, now the truth is obviously going to be somewhere in between. But as you project this now across your three, four dozen stores, is this going to be an add on? the new way of doing business, a blend? How do you see it rolling out as we stumble towards a post-COVID uh, form of retail? So I think it's, it's very much a complementary service to everything else that we do. So, you know, it's allowed us to reach new customers where there isn't a Sophology nearby. I guess one thing just to consider is that Sophologies are generally on retail parks, which could be 20, 30, 40 miles away from you. Um, we're not all mm. over the country. We are kind of, uh, you know, spread around. So what it's allowed us to do is, you know, where people have been less certain about going out into the kind of the retail experience because of COVID, it's allowed people to either A, go and just, you know, experience the in-store, find the product, go home, and then I guess validate that choice when they get home by measuring up or whatever that might be, and then buying through, say, for example, Sophologist Live, or actually it's allowed people to do the research phase. So actually, you know, we'll connect to a Sophologist in-store, we'll find out a little bit more about the product and the range of offering that they have. And then what we'll then do is we'll then go in store after that call because it's worth the 50, 60 mile drive to go and actually then purchase um, the product there. And are you tracking that digital first to store, store to digital, the sort of, you know, cross channel journey? Uh, is that something that you're able to track? And if so, what was that telling you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's key for us. I guess one of the great things about Sophology is we're as passionate about the whole customer journey as we are about just, you know, making transactions online. The website is just a... It's just a tool that we have, part of our omni-channel journey, as is stores. So yeah, so we track everyone from the point in which, so if I came on the website, I was searching for a store on the website, and then I went into store, and then I talked to a sophologist, gave the email address um, as part of, I guess, the, the account creation process, we would then stitch you back up to where you originally started. So I think, you know, from that, we know that 97% of all people who purchase from Sophology start their journey online in some way, shape, or form. You know, that could just be mm. find your nearest store. It could be um, looking at a product. It could just be even you hit the website from an email and bounce back off. It's key to us kind of evolving as a business that we understand all those various different data points and how they add value to the Sophology journey. You know, um, you meant, I mean, we talked about the Sophology Live bit. That's fantastic. Sounds like a really good service and I can see it being very relevant. I mean, what about other technology? Because there's a lot of talk about, you know, extended reality or whatever the expression is for that. Do you look at that kind of thing or do you keep it more of a, we really want you in the store. We really want you on the other end of a FaceTime call. How do you see it? Um, so I think it's about giving customers choice. Hmm. Um, customers should be able to interact with you as a brand however they want, where they want, when they want, how they want. Your job, I think, as a retailer is to give customers the tools to be able to talk to you as a business. You know, we don't currently have AR or anything like that on the website. Is it something that there's a place for on a, you know, on a sofa retailer? Absolutely. If you look at DFS, they're doing it, having great successes with it. You know, for me, it is, it's just about continuing to extend our choice, our options for our customers to kind of talk to us and engage with us. 
but there's definitely you know the, the digital isn't just going to be the be all and end all there's there's you know you need to you need to have that balance between online and offline to especially in our in our industry yeah now you've obviously been busy in your first nine months so that's great as you're you know gonna head back to work what are you looking forward to for the next uh, the next nine months what's on your agenda as interesting projects or key areas of focus i think the first thing i'm looking forward to is actually seeing some people's faces in real life <laughs> i think uh, you know no you didn't include us no disrespect but i'm locked up in my daughter's bedroom looking at zoom calls and hangouts in that daily so i think you know a bit of human to human interaction won't go amiss so i guess that aside um yeah exciting time from a sophology point of view from my own world's perspective touched on ar that side of things, I think that's somewhere where we need to kind of invest in, and, and look harder. I think it's about trying to keep ahead of our competitors in terms of what they're doing. So, okay, we've got Sophologist Live, but um, you know, there's no reason why another retailer couldn't go and get the same service. So what we've got to think about and what we've got to continually evolve is how we use those tools and how we kind of integrate them into our omni-channel journey. Um, and I think, you know, for me, that's the biggest challenge. It's about how are we going to kind of evolve our business to be new normal, and then at the same time, how are we going to make sure we keep it connected so we don't have these silos of online and, and offline? Great. Well, it sounds like uh, quite a manifesto there. So yeah. <laughs> uh, you've managed to pick up on virtually all of our key points. That's fantastic. And uh, we'd love to get you back, Graham, uh, to see how you're getting on with those next steps. Oh, uh, but for now, thanks for giving us uh, an insight to uh, the world of sofas and your great initiatives. Thank you very much. Great stuff from Graham there. I thought I, mean, I knew him a bit from his past, and he was in a different world there. And and now in sofas, it was good to hear about how they adapted really well within this. What's been a let's say a very tricky time for retailers, particularly ones that are not deemed essential to actually continue to trade. They've done a good job of adapting, haven't they? I think so. And uh, you know, I think it's interesting about the learning across sectors because it would be very easy to say, oh, you know, a lot of the digital stuff doesn't apply because, you know, sofas are sofas. Whereas it's interesting to see that service focus above and beyond everything else, then bringing the digital to enable them to create a better service. So even though the physicalities may not have changed, the whole experience has become a far better one for the consumer. So I think there are lots of lessons there for us all to pick up on. Yeah, so relentless focus. I mean, there's a natural pause between getting the wonderful goods that you've been looking at online and in the shops, I guess, or talking to their advisors about on the on the phone. There is a pause. And how do you make that pause as uh, seem as negligible as possible? Because ultimately, you just want to sit on that sofa and watch that TV. I know I certainly do. Exactly. Well, look, um, let's not keep ourselves from our sofas much longer. Massive thanks to our guests today, Guy and Graham. And as we approach Christmas time, we've got uh, a backlog of some fantastic interviews we've done. So we're looking forward to bringing you those at a rapid clip so that you've got uh, lots to do as you're digesting your Christmas festive meal on the sofa. So Jamie, Thanks again. Lovely seeing you and uh, look forward to seeing you in the next episode. But until then, keep safe and happy trading. Merry Christmas. Christmas.